0: This is Mental Maps, a podcast about navigating the mind. My name is Dr. Josh Liddell. I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner, health counselor, and host of this show. The content of this show is focused on creating a better understanding about the mind and how you can achieve optimal well-being. Uh, before we jump into the show, I wanted to give you guys a quick update on a really cool collaboration we have going right now. If you've been following the show for a while, you know how important it is for your gut health to be at optimal functioning, and one of the ways to do that is through things like probiotics and prebiotics. And if you've listened to the show, you also know how challenging it can be to find good supplementation for that. And so that's one of the reasons that Mental Maps has decided to collaborate with Just Thrive Health. This is a really great company who focuses on making spore-based probiotics. Uh, if you're new to that, you can go back to some of the other episodes, primarily with like Dr. Krishnan, who discusses how important that version of a probiotic and prebiotic are. And so one of the things that we've done with Just Thrive is to give people an opportunity to try these supplements. You can use the discount code MAPS it's capital M, capital A, capital P, capital S. We'll also put that on our Instagram and in the show notes. And you can use that to get 15% off of any of your purchases. So go ahead, try that out at Just Thrive. I use it. I've really been impressed with the effect it's had not only on my overall gut health but mental health. And so I would recommend you guys check that place out. So it's JustThriveHealth.com. Welcome back to Mental Maps. As always, hope this finds you well, no matter what season of life that you're in. As you jump in the episode today, this is going to be a little bit different show compared to shows in the past. Um, While I was navigating through Finland and learning as much as we possibly could while we were there, one of the biggest things that I was trying to understand to the best of my ability was, how is mental health viewed in this area, and how is the treatment and what does this look like that was a major focus for our time there and so while we're working through there we were able to connect with a lot of different people but one of the people in particular, was a postdoc researcher by the name of Dr. Tommy Bergstrom Uh, Dr. Bergstrom is based out of Karaputas Psychiatric Hospital and he was able to provide some really incredible insight into the world of mental health in this area. What makes this show a little bit different is we didn't do a uh, recording with Dr. Bertram. rather we had just a constant correspondence between one another and so what this will be is more of a summary of that discussion as well as unpacking a lot of the things that he he talked about rather than that back and forth discussion uh, that we normally have with the guests on the show. So a little bit different um, but I think that this material is very important and I think it's very helpful to people and so I want to get it out there just so people know you can look up Dr. Tommy Bergstrom I'll put his information on our show page he's a PhD out of the University of Javalaskia I think is the name of it as well as a master's out of the University of Eastern Finland with a lot of research and his research is really implicated in about application of like community-based care different types of treatments a lot of first episode psychosis work, that kind of stuff, and so I thought his research was very intriguing and made him quite a, a great asset to discuss this. But as we and him we to discuss, one of the biggest things I wanted to understand first and foremost was, how is mental health viewed in Finland? We know this is happy, quote-unquote happiest country in the world, and we know there's mental illness there, we know that there are certain parts of that area that are higher in mental illness than other places, and so what what does it look like and how is it viewed? And so he... As we in this discussion, he really hit me with something a little bit different that I wasn't quite expecting, and so when I asked him what mental health was, he said, quote, I don't prefer the term mental health, he, and he actually opened it up with how mental health is more of this subjective phenomenon, and really what we're referring to are the emotion, thoughts, and behaviors that are viewed to be good or bad or cause harm or wellness within someone's perspective and their group and their tribe. And I thought, thought that was really interesting that you know, he didn't come at it in a way of, oh, it's a it's an organic brain dysfunction, or oh, it's a biopsychological social illness, you know, like we use so much in Western culture, or even like how many times we talk on here it's, it's nutrition-based or it's gut-based. He talked basically that first and foremost, mental health in itself is something that's interpersonal, yet it's based on how the society perceives itself perceives these behaviors and these emotions and these thoughts that really dictate if something is well or unwell or ill or you know healthy and so i think that's something that we we miss a lot of times in our culture is that we talk a lot about how we need to personalize health care yet we personalize health care in a way that's really driven towards the person rather than the society. and We're going to expand on that a little bit more. But he had a really great quote when he was talking about this. He said, I think, he said, quote, I think, I think difficult emotions, thoughts, and behaviors are usually consequences of current living environments, certain kinds of demands within that living environment, and other social problems within these environments. I don't think mental health can be universally reducible to a common cause. And I thought, man, what a powerful statement that is, that what we view as an illness, these emotions and these thoughts and these behaviors, which I think we all would agree is how we know what the brain is doing, is really just based on our living environment and the demands of these living environments and the social problems that exist within these living environments that are causing a lot of these illnesses. And so it's really hard to reduce these emotions thoughts and behaviors down to just saying this is predetermined brain function and so as we kind of expanded from there one of the things i wanted to know is why is finland considered the happiest country in the world and you know i think we asked that out to someone else on the previous podcast if you haven't listened to that episode i highly recommend it because this kind of builds on it some but he highlighted a very similar concept that no one really understands where that came from Outside of the ratings and reports aren't really based on emotional happiness or well-being, rather it's based on measures like such as economics and corruption and policy and freedom of speech. And so for him, he believed, it, as well as other people, other things you see, is that many of these general structures in the Baltic areas are very good. Specifically in Finland, you know, as we heard in that other podcast, where you know, homelessness is very minimal there. There's a lot of sociological things that they've been able to fix in certain structures yet there is still a profound amount of mental illness in these countries we know that you know from the diagnosable perspective suicide rates are very high in Finland it has dropped a lot but it has been very high there's a lot of drug and alcohol related disorders in his opinion there and there's even including consumption among the top of the world in in that area He also he also highlighted something really interesting as well. He said in Finnish culture there's a very heavy traumatic historical burden throughout the histories and so there's some cultural aspects that make it very difficult for people in these cultures to even express how they're feeling. So even though they're considered happy based on these these certain social structures, some of the heaviness that they carry every day has led to them to not maybe talk about it as much, but then also they do have a higher rate of suicide. And he believed that the two disorders he sees the most, it would be depression and psychotic disorders. We're going to talk about that psychotic disorder concept in a little bit. I thought that was really interesting. He also believes that from this and from the the mental health perspective, in Finland there's a very high value placed on authority, and there's a very high value placed on illness, and then therefore the Western medical model is really used a lot there, primarily the use of other medications and being able to diagnose these illnesses, and so I think you see that even in these cultures that are pretty separated from the Western healthcare and Western point of view, our view is kind of infiltrated in a bit to be able to dictate some of the things that they're using, the way they're diagnosing, the way they're managing all of this. Which can be a, a bit of a challenge from a cultural perspective and i think that's something that they've ran into and something he talks about a lot and so knowing that inside finland has, has made these great changes they've dropped suicide rates we know suicide rates are still there and so i was asking i asked him as well like where did this come from like how was this drop and what, how did this occur and he said that suicide is alarmingly high in finland compared to other places in europe um in lithuania for example has the highest rates there has been a decreasing trend in finland and that was something that they talked about before is they were the leader of suicide and now it's decreased but there has been a little bit of an uptick since COVID, and so um, on our other show they kind of talked about that but one of the things that he mentioned and i thought this was really interesting is that suicide rates really peaked in the mid-95 mid-1995 which was considered their Great Depression from an economical and a um, social standpoint, and I thought that was really interesting that he believed that their suicide rates were the highest and really peaked in this time of a social chaos, and it kind of leans into what he was saying before of the social problems within the structure that you're living in is the mover to why you're finding yourself being quote unquote mentally ill because prior to this there had been a reduction throughout the 80s there have been some global uh, or some national projects done in that area which has been very helpful Uh, you know the the need to supplement with vitamin d and the bright light therapy has been really helpful to them over there because they have times of like permanent darkness we've seen that same thing here in america primarily in the northeastern states as well as in alaska the need for that bright light therapy the need to supplement with vitamin d people who are elderly needing to supplement even more with vitamin D because maybe their stomach isn't being able to absorb that vitamin D as well as, you know, a younger person. So we know that that was very important, and they've had success with that as well. And I thought that was really interesting. But knowing that there's still an alarmingly high suicide rate inside the quote-unquote happiest country in the world. So even though that maybe economical and political things are good, there's still this need to have an awareness of your own emotions, because it's getting to a place where you are going to hurt yourself. And so that led me to ask him, how is mental health treated? in Finland so what is the, what are these treatment modalities look like and he believed the, the medical model was very prevalent inside Finland the medical model being that you have an illness and that illness needs a treatment and so you give a treatment primarily the use of some type of medication or some other kind of intervention and so he believed the use of psychotropics are very high there on uh, the national rates of the use of both antipsychotics and other like antidepressants are very high and due to it being publicly funded a lot of the municipalities with inside Finland have to guarantee access to healthcare. However, following that Great Depression in '95, these healthcare systems have had major organizational challenges to offer these adequate services. And so this is another reason where they kind of push to continue the treatment through the medical model. And I think America sees a very similar situation, whereas in America we find ourselves with a large amount of people accessing care with it, not a lot amount of workers. In Finland, they have a high amount of workers per capita. He said it's actually very high when you compare it to many of the other countries around the world. The challenge for them is that many of these people have left to go to private practices. And so a lot of people who are not managing these multi, multi-system health cares where you have like municipalities and other funding. And so a lot of people aren't accessing that care. So then we we bridged in from there, and so we're talking as we're kind of discussing the, the healthcare model in Finland and what this looks like and how it's treated. He really felt like there are very highly trained psychotherapists there, but as all of them operate in the private setting, the psychotherapeutic work in Finland is not treatment of mental disorders, but rather it's been to support people's work capability. That kind of goes back to what we learned in the other episode about how so many of the people with mental illness have found their way back to work. The goal is to give them the ability to work. And I think there's something really important in that because that work is very purposeful. That's a challenge that we see in severe mental illness here where not all people, but some people will find themselves not working and not doing those things. And we know that rate is quite high when you compare it to other parts of the world, especially industrialized parts of the world. And so, in his opinion, he believed that the treatment outcomes in Finland is pretty poor. And there are really high overlap between the service level and there are very high risk of people's conditions that come chronically. And so these chronic conditions lead to people constantly seeking care. Those people don't get better. They don't fulfill certain criteria for maybe service intakes and different things. And so the system's kind of convoluted with people accessing care, maybe not receiving the treatment that they need, and never getting better. But then he followed up with, quote, I'm afraid that the main problem still remains. Mental disorders are viewed as a problem of the individual rather than when an individual environment interaction or other factors are actually causing human suffering in this situation so even despite all this in his opinion the reason that there's so much of a challenge is not well, even there's been municipalities and there's all those challenges of accessing care but the main problem is still that we're all viewing mental health disorders as a problem rather than understanding how the individual interacts with the environment and that's something we see also in, within our communities as well here in, in western healthcare. and so that opened up with so what does this look like how would you go about treating someone with this individual environment-based interaction. And he's done a lot of work in this and he highlighted some of his work. Like I said, I'll post some of this on the uh, episode page. He's also done, assisted with the WHO and how they um, built some community-based things such as like how to implement community-based treatment, that type of stuff. But one of the major things that he was, or major, maybe frameworks he was a proponent of is something called open dialogue therapy. Now for my other for clinicians out there, the people who do therapy or know ther- things about therapy, I never heard of open dialogue therapy. Uh, from my research and from what he says, this is very similar to what we would consider as like psychodynamic therapy, but open dialogue therapy was created in the 80s primarily as a way to respond to people who are unwell really for people who are in early psychosis meaning they're hearing things seeing things those kind of experiences but also other crises such as like uh, suicidal ideation that type of stuff and so in that same hospital that i re- recommended that he was part of at the caraputas hospital in torino florida or florida torino Flint, finland thinking about being in florida uh torino finland that is where this began and it's grew, grown and so i'm far for not an expert in this and this isn't a um uh, podcast about open dialogue therapy but I think it's important to know what it is so there's really four concepts in this version of therapy and so the first is there's immediate help so when someone is ill using this version of treatment there's immediate help within 24 hours meaning these people seek treatment and begin treatment within 24 hours and then here's where things get pretty radical in my opinion when this occurs there is a complete social perspective of how they intervene. So rather than you showing up to the hospital, we do a, a quick assessment on you, we identify that you are having a psychotic break, we give you some medicine, we calm you down, you stay in the hospital for 72 hours, eat some food, hopefully stay calm, and then you leave. In this perspective, what occurs is that they bring in everyone in this person's tribe, meaning that they gather any clinician that's involved including like a primary care physician, they'll gather the family members of this person, so the immediate family of the person who is ill, their friends, their co-workers, and their bosses, and any other relevant person in their life for a joint discussion. So rather than bring you in, isolate you from people, put you with other people who are considered ill as well, give you medicine, hope you get better, they say, let's bring everyone together that's part of your social group. And let's create a joint discussion and this joint discussion embraces uncertainty by encouraging an open conversation about what's going on so there's no premature conclusions this person has schizophrenia or this person is going is depressed because they're just depressed when they woke up or that there's this treatment plan where they need to take these medicines they need to do, do these things they bring in everyone they begin to embrace uncertainty and they create this dialogue this conversation and as they create this dialogue it's quote has a quote sense of withness rather than aboutness aboutness being that they're with the person within this place the meeting is going to be dropped gets rid of these clinical concepts it's all about listening to what people say rather than what they think they mean and that's so radical to me as a as a provider who's always looking for what does the psychotic episode mean or does the the thought mean they're not really focused on that in the moment what they're focused on is how is the societal lifestyle for this person interacting with how they feel and that's why you bring everyone together and so how's your interactions been with these people what does this look like what kind of demands are you is there abusive fathers or all these different challenges and here's where it gets pretty crazy is it Open-dialog approaches led to a reduction in hospitalizations, the use of medicines, and recidivism when compared to standard treatments. Sukula and colleagues in 2006 completed a five-year study that found that 83% of patients had returned to their job or their studies or were looking for a job following their episode of having been psychotic in the same, in the same study. 77 percent of people had no residual symptoms of their illness so these people sought treatment they received this version of treatment some with medicine some maybe not they get better five years later they're still gonna a job they're doing their studies they're doing those things and 77 percent didn't have residual symptoms that researcher also had done more in-depth work on first episode and found that primarily when you done this work with medicine in the open dialogue and without medicine, there was better effect, meaning that they had a greater decrease in symptoms. And after three years, only thirty percent of people were still on medications. That's wild. That you had a psychotic break in that three years later, only thirty percent of people medicine, and so we're seeing this being used a little bit in our country. The University of Massachusetts is doing it, as well as some other universities around the Northeast area. But we know that it's it's not the same that we at right now um, as it is there. And so I think it's a really cool therapy model because, what he, in his opinion, <clears throat> that is the most important thing that you can do is respond in that way. Those immediate interventions, creating conversation, getting rid of the clinical gaze, and continuing to open this up. And so, as I mentioned earlier, he had helped assist the WHO in the creating the creating of their like really person-centered, recovery-centered uh, treatment modality. And so, I was looking things up, and I found this huge document uh, that the, the WHO has published a few years back, based on how do you respond to communities who are unwell. It has different clinical studies and different things. If if you uh, anybody's interested, please just drop up a message I can send you the link to it because it's a pretty heavy document but I thought I pulled out something that was really important to me because I thought this was really highlighted the importance of this open dialogue there because remember he helped create this for them Um, he was part of this huge team who who helped this and so just gonna kinda read a quote from this because I think it's really important it says quote although some countries have taken critical steps towards closing psychiatric and social care institutions this is the WHO addressing um, the changes that are occurring in all over the world for mental health care. Simply moving mental health services out of these settings has not automatically led to dramatic improvements in care. The predominant focus of care in many contexts continues to be on diagnosis, medication, and symptom reduction. Critical social determinants that impact people's mental health, such as violence, discrimination, poverty, exclusion, isolation, job insecurity or unemployment, lack of access of housing, social safety nets, and health services are often overlooked or excluded from mental health concepts and practices. This leads to an overdiagnosis of human distress and an over-reliance of psychotropic drugs to the de- detriment of the psychosocial interventions, a phenomenon which has been well documented, particularly in high-income countries. When I read that, I think about all of the challenges we see today in our in our healthcare system, and so many times we get very frustrated. On we just need more workers, or we need more resources, or we need more medicine, or we need better medicine. Into a case that it is needed, there are a need of in certain instances, especially in physical health illnesses. But in the world of mental healthcare, what if, what if a large amount of our problem is the overdiagnosis of human distress? the over-reliance of psychotropic drugs that has led to the detriment of the psychosocial interventions because we're not taking into account all the other social contexts that exist. And we know this happens. We know this is something that we struggle with. In the book Crazy Like Us by uh, Ethan Waters, phenomenal book, he talks about how societies will help people show how they are unwell. So societies will drive how people will show that they are not well anymore and that will lead to how they're then seen as something that's ill and then that's how they'll be treated. And you've seen that across cultures, not just only in our culture, but across cultures. That's something. And so I think what you then see is this lack of improvement from a lot of people because we're not taking into the social concepts of what's going on right now. And that, that is really important because I think that is where we have some really big challenges. And really big issues in that way. The other There's so much information in that um, article I was talking about in that paperwork I was talking about, but what we know of is that in other countries, specifically in Finland, one of the goals right now is this huge community-based model that's helped decrease suicidality already and is continuing to be a major factor in treating mental health because it's removing the term of mental health overall and putting it on the community and the person interaction between one another. I also asked him how social media was impacting this. So when we're talking about community and we're talking about personalization, a lot of people's community is driven outside of the physical realm and in more of this like virtual world. And in his opinion, as a clinician in the hospital, it's hard to say how social media is really impacting the mental health in Finland. He said, quote, many people adopt a medical narrative from social media, and thus they'll seek help, which that's led to, as we've seen in this culture, a lot of inappropriate use of treatments. What we see right now, you know, I'm recording this in 2023, and we're currently in the Adderall epidemic, and a lot of the other challenges that we're seeing with medications, just with overprescribing, we're seeing these in other countries as well, too, and it could be that social media is a major driver in this. However, in his opinion, social media does hold the ability to help because it does create these social relationships that people normally wouldn't have. And so there's like pros and cons with the medical, just like it is in this country. They also see the very similar things of self esteem and et cetera there. So you have the challenges, you know, with medicalization, maybe improper use of knowledge, self esteem that type of thing, but you also see where they create these li- these livable relationships with people on social media and just can help those because we know how important that is. And so I asked him, as we kind of finished up our conversation, what can people do to improve their mental health? Now remember, we've already kind of unpacked that he is not a big fan of the mental health concept, uh, but he said, quote, he believes that to have a, a regular richer life, there needs to be a more comprehensive comprehensive discussion on the different kind of life difficulties for people. So primarily, what we all consider good, bad, uh, strange, or proper, exceptional, or weird, all these different stuff, how we all see that. What we find problematic, and what we find as a challenge. Because he says, quote, what I have found Is What is problematic and paradoxical is that in our society, we need to reframe our difficult emotions, thoughts, and behaviors as symptoms of ideological open medical conditions in order to reduce guilt and blame or make them more understandable. So his belief is that we have a lot of these emotions and thoughts and behaviors rather than reframing it, looking at it, beginning to expand it, we then just medicalize it, put a condition on it, avoid the guilt and shame or whatever we're experiencing with it, and then move on. He says, quote, we should also try to tolerate the different kinds of challenges in our life, including difficulties to reach unrealistic ideals and demands. And so what I took from this discussion, and I think what is so important, is that another view of mental health is not that it's, nutritional based or that it's you know what we consider social would be like stress based or things such as that but it is a human to human interaction primarily from a personal experience to the community at large and that is where a lot of this happens and when you think about where our mental health or what our brain health whatever we want to call it is in america we're starting to see these challenges get higher and higher and higher in that the more strain that's put on the community, the more intensity, the more divisiveness, the more fighting, the more um, comparisons, the more of all these things that are going on, the more hurry, the more um, demands on your daily functioning, the more need for productivity. We've seen mental health illnesses rise dramatically. And there's always been this hot discussion in America, and I think it's happening in other countries too, as well as in Europe, is that... Is these upticks in illness because of people talking about it more and so now there's more openness? Or is it there's been a shift in our society? For a long time in my training specifically, we were always taught that the reason that mental health is increasing in America is not because people are getting sicker, it's because people are talking about it now and they feel more open. And I do believe part of that is true, but I also believe our society is pushing a lot of this. And it's creating a lot of these challenges. And the unfortunate part is, in our society, very regularly, r- rarely, very rarely, do we meet people in a social setting, bring in all the people in their life, and begin to understand what's going on, and seeing how those people can assist in helping them. And maybe, maybe that's something we need to be doing, because maybe that holds the key to something that we haven't quite understand yet. And maybe it could give us some better treatment modalities. Because as we talked about in another podcast before, what we're doing is not working. So takeaways, I think the most important thing is we all must tolerate distress, which is the hardest thing to do. Um, Like David Goggins talks a lot about is just doing something that you don't like every day just to begin to tolerate distress more and more and more. And so you can then not find yourself feeling pathological when things don't go your way or it goes awry. The second thing if you're unwell or you don't feel right, looking at your social structure and say, how am I interacting with the world right now? Not that you need to conform and be part of the group or whatever that looks like, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, how are these demands from your world impacting your daily life? Kind of going back to that brain gas tank that we talked about before. How much gas are you using every day? But rather than saying, I need to go fill up my gas tank better, maybe it's being able to say, why do these demands even exist and how can I move on from them? And begin to take off the personalization of all of it's on you, but rather it's on you about how you're interacting with the rest of the world. And the, and the solution should come not solely from you and not solely from the community, but together. I think that's one of the biggest things i learned from this discussion. And that's one of the biggest things that I learned in Finland is that community is important. It's more important than I ever thought it was. Because community is more than just social interactions and coping skills and feeling good and having hobbies. Social interaction is a meeting of the person and their environment. It's the understanding of their demands and the needs of the person and how that society meets them and creates more demands that then leads to more unwellness. So if you're not well, look at your tribe. How are those demands, how are those experiences, impacting you. Don't know what you need to do. Don't know where you're at in that. And not to say you don't need to not seek care because if you're not if you're unwell, reach out. But it is something that you think about and as a clinician man, this is something we need to be thinking about when we meet people. When they come in and say they're depressed, are they really depressed? Are all the demands of their society creating their depression or their anxiety, et cetera? So great knowledge, great wisdom. I want to thank Dr. Bergstrom for just taking the time to answer these questions. There was so much knowledge that he shared with me, but I felt like these core concepts were really important to get out and, and discuss and definitely change the way we view mental health care and mental health because society has an impact and we gotta figure out in this system how to fix that without a medicine